So uh, big news for the listeners this week, as I'm sure everyone's been following, uh, you know, there's been the big controversy with Joe Rogan and Neil Young and Spotify. Oh, wow. You've been following this, Ethan? Um, no. I mean, I've, I've been, I, I follow each of those uh, individuals and corporations separately, but I didn't know there was an interaction. Yeah, well, so like Neil Young is very opposed to like Joe Rogan's kind of like vax uh, misinformation. And so he has actually pulled his uh, music from Spotify. Wow. And uh, I felt like uh, we should, uh, you know, stand in solidarity with Neil Young. Mm. So we will actually be, you're told, but I'm standing in front of you as of today is no longer going to be available on Spotify or anywhere else besides uh, neilyoungarchives.com where we've signed an exclusive contract for $1.99 a month. You get access to the full Neil Young discography wow. and every episode of your tall, but I'm standing in front of you. <laughs> and we're really excited about it. Wow. What a deal. Um, so I, I actually, um, uh, I didn't know about that. We were going to be doing this, uh, but thank you for taking the lead. Yeah, I mean, I do, decision. I do have power of attorney for the podcast. Yeah. Which, you know, so you haven't been following this news at all? No, not at all. But I have been working on a song that um, I think is is in the vein of uh, Neil Young that uh, he would probably appreciate and probably would, uh, given the news, be a, a better opener for uh, the podcast with our, our move to the neilyoungarchives.com. All right. Let's, uh, you know, I can't wait to hear it. I'm sure it's going to be really... Uh... You know, it's obviously not going to be topical because you haven't been following the yeah. news, but it's, I think it's going to be really thematically resonant. Can't wait to hear it. Let's uh, let's hear the new the new theme song for your tall, but I'm standing in front of you exclusively on neilyoungarchives.com. So Ethan, I have some questions. Yeah, shoot. Um, this did. I don't. I don't know if you noticed this. Mm-hmm. The song. It's very. Have you heard of a song called Ohio? That's you know. It's uh, I've heard like, there's a state, state shooting. There's a state called. Yeah, that. yeah. Well, so like, there's also a song uh, about Ohio. Oh, specifically like the Kent State shootings. Are you familiar? Yeah, with no, that? I've, like, I've heard. Really yeah, important. No. Yeah, I think and, I've like heard Neil that Young one. wrote that song, and it your song does sound very similar yeah no that 
No, that wasn't Neil Young. That was Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Um, but uh, I get, I get how you could. Yeah, 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 that is. Yeah, I mean, those are. Yeah, and it, it was Sean Young in that <laughs> band, right? From Blade Runner. Uh, it could have been. Um, I don't follow. But but yeah. But you, you keep saying you haven't been following the news. But I mean, that does appear to that song does appear to be about this controversy. Uh, I mean, I do think you know I. I I've heard the the song Ohio. One of the faults is that you know, like it's very one sided. Yeah, like you don't yeah. have a like you don't have a verse from the perspective of the National Guard. Uh, so I think like my song is like a little bit of an improvement, and that like you sort of get into the 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 mind of the the anti vaxxer um, and and really like yeah. you know because empathy is so well, important. The, well, you know, and it's like I've just negotiated this you know this is like a multi-million dollar deal yeah with oh, com, and i'm like really like no, i got a i got a plus one in my inbox are, from neil um yeah like it's a i don't a i i'm release. worried he's gonna be upset about this you know yeah he's got some pretty serious views and he, huh. he's also very careful about like the ways in which his music is heard and like the fidelity at which it's heard, like yeah, he uh, copied me on an email to uh, the neilyoungarchives.com. He said, "With an estimated eleven listeners per episode, you're tall, but I'm standing in front of you." Um, <laughs> which is hosted exclusively on the neilyoungarchives.com is the neilyoungarchives.com's largest podcast and has tremendous influence. Uh, the Neil Young Archives.com has a responsibility to mitigate the spread of misinformation on its platform, though the company presently has no misinformation policy. So let this be note, the Neil Young Archives.com can have you're tall, but I'm standing in front of you or young, not both. Uh, well, that was rude. And I'm just getting, I actually have just gotten word myself that, you know, I have like a Google alert set up for the podcast. Press release just released by the neilyoungarchives.com. And like, I can't think this is going to be good for us, but I'm, I'm, I'm reading this for the first time. We had a good run. So this is, we're breaking this news live on the pod. This may be the last episode of the podcast. Yeah. All right. So getting this in live from neilyoungarchives.com, quote, we want all Neil Young's music and audio content to be available to neilyoungarchives.com users. <laughs> With that comes great responsibility in balancing both safety for listeners and freedom for creators. We have detailed content policies in place, and we've removed over 20,000 podcast episodes related to Red Dawn since the escalation of hostilities in Ukraine. We regret Neil Young's decision to remove his music from neilyoungarchives.com, but hope to welcome him back soon. Wow. That didn't go the way that I thought it was going to go. Well, I mean, I guess we are now the flagship entertainment of neilyoungarchives.com. Yeah, we can whip up a few more uh, Neil Young style songs, I'm sure. How hard can it be? All right. How hard can it possibly be? Well, uh, you know, that's a, you know, that's a win for us. And yeah. uh, welcome to your Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You, the exclusive podcast of neilyoungarchives.com. Uh, we're two friends circling the drain of academia, examine the cultural detritus of the 20th century. I'm Devin. I'm Ethan. And hell of an episode this week. 
like, you know, like people sometimes, you know, they ask us like, you know, you, you examine the cultural detritus of the 20th century, yet you will have episodes about, uh, you know, 21st century films, mm-hmm. right? Our last episode was about uh, Spider-Man, uh, Far From Home or No Way Home. Uh, you will have uh, episodes about good movies like The Master. Or um, Super Mario Brothers. Or Super Mario Brothers. But, uh, but you know, we are really back in our like classic bullshit this week. Wow. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. the detritiest detritus <laughs> perhaps we, we have ever watched and will ever watch. Uh, Red Dawn, 1984. Yeah, not the 2012 version with uh, where North Korea invades the United States, but the classic 1984. Yeah, directed by uh, John Milius. Oh, uh, was he running the CIA as... in the 80s? <laughs> um, he did co-write uh, Apocalypse Now, <laughs> which you would think would be would be promising. Uh, he also, though, wrote the first two Dirty Harry films, mm. so... I would really like to see specifically what contributions to the Apocalypse Now screenplay that he made. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a movie about uh, friendship, brotherhood, freedom, yeah, and why uh, sporting goods store gun registry forms are just execution lists Mm -hmm. waiting waiting to happen i've been saying this for years i've got a little plot (laughs) summary that we can run through uh before we dive right into things if that works for you absolutely um, yeah no we do need to because viewers you're not going to want to watch this so (laughs) let us let us summarize it for you yeah so 1984's red dawn is a traditional coming of age story perhaps drawing inspiration for its title from the john steinbeck classic the red pony This film stars Patrick Swayze as the indomitable Jed Eckert, with his love interest being played by the always charming John Birch Society. When we meet Jed at the start of the film, he is listless, not sure what to do with his life ever since coach didn't put him in in the fourth quarter of the state championship, which of course he blames for the team losing the game and for the stagflation of the late 1970s. However, after a chance encounter with a few out-of-towners, Jed finds his calling in life as a sort of Boy Scout leader for his brother Matt, played by the indomitable Charlie Sheen, and Matt's cohort of friends from school. The film details the adventures of this band of merry men as they learn how to brave the harsh mistress that is the Coloradan winter and murder a few score of Soviet, Cuban, and Nicaraguan regular soldiers along the way. The film's plot comes to a head when the producers realize they've exhausted all of their money but haven't used the fancy helicopters yet. (laughs) And also when Colonel Bella, played by the indomitable Ron O'Neill, realizes that he doesn't love communism quite as much as he loves good old reliable Catholicism. You will laugh, you will cry laugh, and you will groan at this 1984 classic filmed almost entirely on location in Langley, Virginia. Please join us for this American classic (laughs) Red Dawn. <laughs> no, you know, I think you, what I love about that is you really got to actually the core of what's actually going on in this film, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I don't know to the extent we even want to do an actual plot summary of this film. Yeah. Right? Basically, it's like, we've got these these dudes, they're in high school, they're getting a uh, lecture about the Mongols in 
how the Mongols would kill people. Yeah. Which, <laughs> in like excruciating detail from memory by this <laughs> history teacher. And uh, the Soviet Union just kind of like parachutes in and starts fucking like murking people. <laughs> in four minutes into this film, there are paratroopers dropping uh, outside of their high school who just immediately, like the teacher walks outside to be like, what's going on here? Um, which ends up being a poor decision because they gun him down. They like, they RPG <laughs> into the hallway of the school for some reason. They're blowing up school buses. Yeah. Um, yeah the, like it, four mm -hmm. minutes is what it takes for the Soviets to invade. It's, it's, you, you missed one piece, which is the like opening credits. Oh, of course. This is yeah. like a alt at that time, like present reality where like mm -hmm. there's, I, like, it's like, hey, what if we wanted to do like the fear mongering of the eighties, but like, we don't have time. So we're just going to like list it as things that definitely could happen in this alternate future. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, it's very much like it's, it's not, it, that's, what's very weird about it because the film wants you to feel like this could happen. Yeah. Right. Like this could, cause it's a very, it's vibe is very sort of like, like we actually don't get, we only see this war, it's World War III, basically, that breaks out. We only see it from the small town. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, we don't actually, like, the the characters don't have access to what is actually going on in, like, the rest of the world, right? Yeah. We never get, like, a clear sense of even what exactly the scale of the invasion is, really. We know there's been some nukes dropped and stuff. Uh, but it's meant to feel like, oh, this could happen to you. You're just in class one day and then like, boom, the Russians are there. Except that to make that credible, it relies upon creating a completely alternate history through these like title cards, which are basically just like these sensationalist, like, you know, kind of like scenarios of, of uh, socialism, communism spreading, but things that didn't happen. <laughs> um, so it's like, we're being told we're like in the normal world, right? But by the time the film is like starting and the title cards have stopped, we are actually in a completely alternate universe. Yeah. In which seemingly the US is actually like not the main superpower. So like, uh, but the film like also relies on you instantly forgetting about that. <laughs> and then just feeling like this is happening to like you and you and the America, you know, right? Yeah. I'm so because they just like lay out like screen after screen. They're like, Cuba enlists a million soldiers. NATO dissolves. Mexico has civil war. We don't arm the Contras in Nicaragua. And I'm surprised they didn't like throw on there like the Democrats raise taxes or like something like if you're like shooting mm -hmm. all your shots, like throw something out there. Like we don't arm the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Like. Things like yeah, that yeah, because yeah. they just like put out all of these points before the movie even begins. And then it begins and within four minutes, the Soviets have invaded Colorado. Yeah, it, it yeah, it isn't technically in media res because it does start with just like this scene of like they're going to school and like the reminiscences of Patrick Swayze about the football game and like, you know, the, the, the team is the Wolverines and that ends up being the name that they take on as like guerrilla fighters. Right. But like, as you say, like almost instantly, it's just like, Oh, it's like, there's no escalation. It's just like zero to 60. Yeah. 
and basically just like these these few kids managed to like make off into the woods yeah um, then, like one of their one of the kids dads has like a a general store out in the country that they grabs hilariously they grab like cases of coke and sprite and no water <laughs> Uh, but they fall yeah. off into the wood and like some guns, which comes back to mm. um, fuck over that that kid's dad later on. But like they haul off yeah. into the woods, into the Colorado wilderness to like wait out World War Three, I guess. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And they like. Uh, it, it's very interesting, like to be like too. like there's no there is no narrative in this film of like these kids because of the this occupation by soviet and and other communist forces like becoming nationalists Mm -hmm. or whatever you know they are instantly nationalists like there's this scene very early where they're still kind of in the process of escaping where there's this big like blockade of soldiers and then like a helicopter's coming and they're like oh shit but then the helicopter starts bombing the uh communist forces and the kids just keep shouting, it's ours, it's <laughs> ours. Yeah. And that line repeats constantly in the movie during these weird skirmishes. People will be like, it's ours. And it's like, it's, you know, you, but like these kids are like 14 or something. Yeah. And they already like have a complete, like they have no ambiguity about being like completely devoted to this, um, this uh guerrilla cause of like fighting the occupying force right? right which um you know one could imagine a movie where like that sort of it, it at least takes the movie like 30 minutes mm. to show like the characters developing in that way and like in response to like whatever the occupying forces are doing right but this is this is a uh fully formed consciousness like pre-exists the movie yeah um and then basically it's just like a few hours of just like occasional skirmishes um, that even like, even if you're in the mood for the, the beefiest, like shallowest action movie, there is no, these scenes have no vitality. No. They have no choreography. They have no sense of space or movement. It's really, it's just like endless machine gun fire. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it literally like every scene repeats. It's, there are communist forces in some location and then suddenly the wolverines pop out they always do like the same scene as Mm -hmm. um, i forget who what her name was but it's like the quiet one she always like pops out and like unfurls her giant machine gun to start like shooting it's the same scene like six times they do this yeah it doesn't feel like a movie at all. It feels like you're watching like a police training video <laughs> or something. Cause it's just like, it's like the same skirmish over and over again. And then like, eventually then there's like, oh, and then they meet this like downed fighter pilot played by Powers Booth, mm. uh, who fought, like has like a romantic relationship with one of the young women. That's really yeah incredibly inappropriate. Yeah. Uh, and the movie apparently like they cut scenes from it because it was like it even viewers in the 80s thought that was weird but uh like it's still like like when he dies later the girl shouts like i will never love again and it's like listen you're def- you're definitely gonna love again don't worry about it it was just powers booth uh but there is like a like 
a less successful skirmish where like Powers Booth dies and like some of the other kids die. The characters are also completely indistinguishable. They have no personalities. They have names. Um, To the extent any are distinguishable, it's Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen because they're brothers, right? And then there's like the two girls and then there's just like additional like uh, generic kids. Um, Yeah, like very early on, they have uh, Daryl, uh, who's like the mayor's kid, who is also like the president of the student union or something at school. So he's like, we should have mm-hmm. a vote to decide what we want to do. And Patrick Swayze is immediately like, no, fuck democracy. I'm the older, yeah. strong guy. Let's become partisans. You don't get a say in this. So it's it's lovely how just immediately they abandon any concept of of democracy and revert to like, uh, let us let us engage in this, this masculine order uh, that that Patrick Swayze will um, lead us through World War III with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, and then uh, that character, of course, ultimately like betrays the group, uh, yeah. which it happens off screen, right? It's like, I gotta so be honest, weird. I was like missing large, yeah. I was missing large sections of this movie because it's just so boring. But like, yeah. We don't see him betray them. Yeah, li- right? like later on we in the movie, find out later. They, they, like he said, he confesses to this when he's caught because they put a tracking device on him. But he's like, "Yeah, I, I snuck into town and they, you know, made me swallow this tracking device." Like, how did this dude like just sneak out of camp and into town? It gets there's only like five of them know, at that point. Probably right? noticed it. Like, yeah, and and this, it just shows you how little this film is interested in. in like regardless of its politics, just any kind of storytelling, because obviously it would be like a relatively compelling scene to show him going into town and then being betrayed by his father, the mayor, who is basically kind of like the Vichy government Mm. of this town, right? Like he's trying to corroborate with with the communists, show him being betrayed by his father, show him being tortured and the device going, you know, that would actually create some characterization, some intrigue. Instead, it's just, we see another skirmish. And then at the end of the skirmish, they find a tracking device and trace it to the guy. And then the one of them kills him. Like, uh, yeah. you know, he's executed for being a traitor. Wait, correct me if I'm wrong, um, but like none of the Wolverines died in that assault, did they? Like, it was another one of these. No, nobody, nobody died. Uh, they got, they killed all the Russians. Yeah, like they. Easily, they got a prisoner they executed. They go through the plot of like, they increasingly become these partisans. Uh, and, and eventually they, they bring in the big bad, the Soviets do, uh, to like come in there and bring order to things and actually take down the Wolverines. But his his plan is essentially like has the same outcome, which is he just like yeah. sends these Soviet troops off into the woods that they also all die. The only difference is like, but they had yeah. a tracking device. Yeah, no, it's literally just like, <laughs> I'm going to, I am, my plan is to also get involved in uh, skirmishes with these guerrilla forces. We should also talk about um, the parents, right? We do get, we get a little bit of the parents, um, but to the extent this film has an arc, one of the most important moments, right, is the two brothers, they like do, they sneak to uh, the drive-in movie theater has become a re-education camp. Mm Uh, and it's playing like an Eisenstein movie. <laughs> um, and the the brother's father is played by Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. Which was so disappointing. <laughs> like one of my favorite actors, right? Like Paris, Texas, uh, various David Lynch stuff, right? Uh, Alien. 
alien, of course, right? Great actor. Gives them just this speech about like how like, hey, I was an abusive dad, but that's good because now you're good at being guerrilla fighters and like avenge me. Yeah. And then him and all the other like dads are like lined up and uh, to be shot and they start singing America the Beautiful and it's like completely out of key and they're like not hitting the notes. They're like fist pumping and then they literally are all shot to death as they are like atonally belting out the line above the fruited plane. Yeah. Uh, hell of a way to go. Yeah. But I guess to the extent the film has an arc, that's kind of like, right, like the Freudian, like, you know, uh, now you are the father or whatever. Right, yeah. They have... Uh, not not Freudian, but you know. Yeah, they have various... It seems like a lot of this, the scenes are intended to essentially be like, to the viewer... Hey, you may have you may inherently think that all of these things that uh, we're talking about in like far right circles are bad, but look at this fictional scenario where we're gonna justify them literally like one by one by one. So Harry Dean Stanton's characters, his exact line was, "I was tough on both of you, and I did things that made you hate me sometimes, but you understand now, don't you?" <laughs> uh, <laughs> Then later on, right after the scene where all of the civilians get gunned down singing America the Beautiful, uh, you have Patrick Swayze's character like trying to console his brother and the others, and his, his whole line is, don't cry, hold it back, let it turn to something else. Just let it turn to something else, okay? Listen to me, don't cry. Don't you ever cry again as long as you live. As long as you live, never do it. <laughs> Like, <laughs> Jesus. This film is made like this was made by people with the emotional intelligence of like a gummy bear. <laughs> like, my God. But it really is like, you know, the uh obviously the more fantastical kind of um speculations the film is doing, right, involve these like major geopolitical scenarios. Mm -hmm. But I think that's that line with about the child abuse, right, is really actually kind of gets to the core logic of this film right which is it's it's taking things that are being done that are objectively horrible right mm -hmm. whether they're actions by fathers whether they're actions by an oppressive state apparatus right but then they are the film is imagining the the uh fantastical event that never happened right <laughs> yeah. that would retrospectively make those actions noble right? right and it's like well what happened in real life was uh harry dean stanton's kids never became guerrilla fighters because the u.s wasn't invaded right and now they're just like fucked up yeah but and like what about the generations of, of fathers abusing their kids even in this universe who like like those fathers didn't time it right and their kids weren't the proper age to become guerrilla fighters right yeah. like but it's this it's this fantasy of like oh but this event will happen and then all this stuff we've been doing which we're actually doing for for reasons of like capital accumulation and you know uh oppressing internal radical forces mm -hmm. to the country you know etc will will it'll turned out oh well they were actually good because look if we hadn't done them uh everyone would have like been slaughtered and and killed right yeah i mean absolutely that's it's it really is uh it, it's pure agitprop in that way that it's like just 
throwing it all at the wall and being like, look at this mountain of hypotheticals. If, if, if this were to happen in a way that just literally can't, cause we have to like, cr- like we have to move into the fantastical realm at the very start of the film. But if all of this happened, then it would all be for a worthy cause. Wouldn't it? Cause uh, yeah, it would all work out. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, we need to kill, we, we need to create like, untold amounts of death yearly so that we can create these particular eight children who somehow won't just get instantly headshotted when they try to defeat the soviet army <laughs> after, you know what which has tanks and yeah. shit right like and it's like you know and you you, you brought up the word agitprop right mm-hmm. and it's like i really want to be clear for especially for folks who haven't seen this movie like we're a podcast that we talk about a lot of movies and we do like unpack their like ideological messages, right? They're like uh, sort of like unspoken ideological justifications. Like it's almost impossible to talk about this film because there actually really is nothing to unpack. This really is just straight up propaganda. Like this is a, like this makes the most reactionary films we've talked about look like incredibly artful. Yeah, yeah. Which I, which I guess like maybe we want to talk about because I think to the extent this film is interesting, right? It's maybe the question of like, well, how did this film get made? Because this film doesn't seem like it should have been like a Hollywood production. It seems like it's like a made for TV movie or even like something that would like, like a PSA by the State Department, right? So like, which is yeah. again, not to say that Hollywood films aren't incredibly reactionary most of the time, right? But like, how did this film become so much what it is uh and like the uh the explanation for that is actually pretty interesting yeah because like this is a film that was so over the top that uh if i have my facts correct the department of defense like withdrew their support of the film like they they actually like (laughs) uh noped out by the end product of this which is like man when you when you are too <laughs> hardcore for the Department of Defense, now I'm actually now I want to like the movie almost. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like it's it. So there is some interesting things to consider. Like, if you're watching the film, if you actually understand the the process through which this film eventually got made, there are some interesting things to think about with that. So for instance, when you look at the original screenplay for this film by Kevin Reynolds, it was meant to be an anti-war film. You know, the idea of like, imagine if war actually came to America, how like dehumanizing it would be, how there are essentially no winners. Uh, And you get like little ghosts of this in the the final product that Mm -hmm. comes out, but it's not in any way that you really catch it if you don't think about it. But I think that's really Mm -hmm. interesting to think about. Yeah, I think like maybe what comes to mind for me is to the extent we get any of that, it's and it's really weird because it's so phoned in at the last minute. But the one uh, Cuban general, yeah, uh, who uh, decides not to kill the brothers at the end of the film, even though the brothers have already received fatal wounds, but he lets them like limp off and die like on their own terms. Right. But like the film has done realizes it's done no work whatsoever to establish why that Cuban general would do yeah, that. And I took note as this was happening 
this is the last 10 minutes of the, including the credits of the film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like they have a scene that comes out of nowhere because none of these characters have been giving any interiority of these uh, these villainous characters where the, the Cuban general is like writing a is he writing a letter or his journal or something? I think it's a letter it to does, his sweetheart or his wife. Or yeah. Something. And, yeah. And it, it, it and it does a voiceover of like what he's writing. Right. So it very much seems like something they like inserted like in post <laughs> like uh, but where he's basically just like having some reflections about how like, man, this is really getting out of hand in so many words. <laughs> uh, but up to that point, like all of those people have been purely like machines of death, right? Yeah. Like the, the film has not been doing any kind of like, oh, it's complicated on both sides thing up to this point. And all the the soldiers that the partisans capture are just like executed um, like dogs. Yeah, th that that character is so interesting. This is uh, what Colonel Bella is his name. Oh, sorry, he's a colonel, not a general. Yeah, but, but who cares? Uh, played by uh, Ron O'Neill, and I guess, is he supposed to be Cuban? Is that the deal? First off, like he's either Cuban or Nicaraguan. I thought. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but... I don't think the filmmakers really differentiated. But yeah, it, first off, it's hilarious because. A lot of the they I guess they were going for like a realism thing, so they speak a lot of Russian and Spanish. Um, but they just had to overdub it all, I'm assuming, because it really does not mm -hmm. line up with uh anybody's mouths when they're speaking. So that's yeah, that's yeah. uh funny. But yeah, he's that's such a weird character for them to decide in the last 10 minutes to try and humanize. I, mm -hmm. I guess, like, just for the fact that, like, well, why wouldn't he kill the Americans at, at the end? And, yeah. and again, like, the, the best I can come up with is because it's, like, maybe because he's a, a godly man and because he, like, he um, is religious. Because it what doesn't he, like, he does, like, that he says, Vio con Dios. He says, like, go with God. Uh, okay, yeah. So, uh, there you go. Yes. Yeah, so so yeah. they're there, they're there. They, it's, like, they're they're trying to do something with, like, the godless Soviet Union, right? Mm -hmm. But the, uh, but like the Catholicism of Latin America, right, still holds within it uh, a potential that could defy the communism. Like, and I, and maybe the message there is like they're trying to say like the communism in Latin America is more being imposed by the Soviet Union, right? And like yeah. the people of Latin America instead want to be colonized by us. Yeah, and this is where it becomes very clear that the script uh, went through a few hands. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. probably the most notable of hands that it went through was, uh, general Alexander Haig, former Nixon mm -hmm. chief of staff, who was on the, the board of MGM, who, uh, got his hands on this and was like, oh, we can do things with this film. Yeah. You might also know, uh, you might remember Alexander Haig from his time as secretary of state under, uh, Reagan. Uh -huh. He's the guy that like erroneously thought that he was third in the line of succession <laughs> when Reagan was shot. Uh, yeah. Like I think the famous line is like "I'm in charge now" or something. Right? Yeah, HW uh, did not appreciate that. But yeah, this guy basically like takes this film over. Yeah, and it really is why it has such a pure agitprop uh, vibe because this was not a this was not a guy that actually understood maybe how to do. <laughs> artful propaganda right we're not trying to say other hollywood films aren't necessarily propaganda mm -hmm. right but uh he was just like let's get some messages it's so here. explicit yeah it's yeah and that's where it really comes to light where you're like oh all of these just 
really gross parts of the film where it's like, here's why parental abuse is okay. Here's why Mm -hmm. literally having any sort of gun registry is bad. Here's why. Yeah. It just like goes one by one by Mm -hmm. one. And it almost seems like he just like gave them notes. Like, here's the things you need to do. It's it's Mm -hmm. very gross. Yeah, on the gun control thing, right? The first thing that the uh, the uh, occupying forces do is uh, they go to like the local uh, sporting goods store. And I guess there's like a form in that store that tells them like everyone who owns a gun and then they like round all those people up basically. So it's like, yeah, uh, you know, and, and and they have no hesitation. They're just like, he knows even the name of the form, this, uh, the uh, one colonel, right? He's like, you need to get yeah. like form like 1050B or whatever. And it's just like, oh yeah. Like it, it, it just sounds like it's like someone watched like Tucker Carlson or something and just like took some notes and we're like, okay, now like we're going to like have all of these things just happen in order where it's like, oh yeah. Having any kind of tracking at all about who owns what guns just means that when the communists invade, they will like execute us. Um, yeah, yeah. That, so the weird thing is, again, maybe just from the process this film went through of being a at first anti-war film to then uh, being, you know, agitprop for the Reagan administration, is that like that whole thing is first off when that happens. Again, the one kid's father, they find out that there are some guns missing because he gave the kids those guns to go run off into the wilderness with so they execute him immediately um but before all that they do like this panning shot of like this dude's car like as the troops are dropping are parachuting in and it has the bumper sticker that says uh they can have my gun when they pry it from my cold dead hands and then it pans to his cold dead hands with his gun (laughs) the idea being like what good is your stupid fucking pistol going to do against a actual military invasion? Mm-hmm. Um, but then again, it immediately follows this with like, Oh, but gun registries, we need to stop that uh, to, because then the communists will be able to find everybody's guns. So there's like these, yeah. this weird discordance in scenes that happens in this film, probably as a result of the development process of uh, the script. Yeah, like watching this film makes me feel insane, but it also makes me like worried for like the average person in the United States, right? Because I feel like the completely incoherent, like every political position in this film is incoherent, right? From the more like tepidly liberal ones to the very state aligned reactionary, like fascist ones to the like, there's also kind of like a like, anti-state libertarianism current in the film mm-hmm. right like it's set in like the west right it's this idea of like you know what but all of those things none of them make any kind of sense at all no. and they're all they're all pure but they all are like faith belief kind of stuff right there's no real material analysis in this at all and it just like but it makes me feel like this must be what it's like to just like have like cable news on your fucking tv 24 <laughs> hours a day that you never turn off like my parents who just leave the tv running even uh-huh. when they're like out of the house uh yeah. so they don't have to they don't have to not have it for a few seconds when they come in the door right like just being constantly bombarded with these completely incompatible like just like statements of certainty of what will happen yeah. when a certain thing happens 
And this film wants you to think that it has this insane ability to predict exactly what, like, it, like, it kind of reminds me of that, like, that guy that had the, like, folks, time for some game theory Twitter thread, right? Like, it's doing this, like, oh, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen thing with absolute certainty, with no acknowledgement of the fact that, like, some of the things that are happening are, like, mutually contradictory and would cancel <laughs> each other out or would precipitate yeah. other kinds of reactions, it's really like an incoherent rant you would hear from someone in a bar or something. Sure. Can I tell you the scene that gave it away to me uh, as, in terms of like, oh, this is like designed agitprop? Um, there, there's a lot of shit that is over the top in terms of just how kind of like despicable it is. But the one scene that gave it away to me where I'm like, who from the Nixon administration was in on this um, was uh, when the Russians... There are some Russians that uh, drive out into the Colorado wilderness and they're like stopping at the national forest to like sight gaze before they're gunned down by the Wolverines. Um, and there's this sign in English that talks about like the origination of like the national forest. And it says, founded by President Theodore Roosevelt under the Forest Service Act of 1905, the forest comprises 40,000 acres of virgin timber, one of the largest stands of blue spruce in the American West. Like, so that's like the, that's what the sign says. And then the, the Russians are like, hey, so-and-so, you learned English at whatever academy. Can you translate what it says to Russian? And the guy translates it and says um, that what, what the sign is saying is, Arapaho National Battlefield. Here was a great peasant uprising in 1908 of the wild Indians. They were crushed by President Theodore Roosevelt, leading imperialist armies and cowboys. The battle lasted all winter. More than 35,000 were killed. It was the greatest battle of the American West. And when I read that, a few things came to mind. First is like, oh, this is someone who like is deep enough in the core of uh american international like political influence to be like oh those those russians they turn everything into like a history of class conflict mm, but yeah, also yeah. someone who like uh would put something like that up and be like isn't that ridiculous that people would think that like the west was won by violence like what a what a terrible misreading of how uh <laughs> of how the peaceful white settler came to, um, you know, inhabit Colorado. So as yeah, soon as yeah. that scene happened, I'm like, oh, oh, this is agitprop from someone in the Nixon or Reagan administration. Yeah. Or, as it turned out, both. That actually is a great point. Cause like, we also get a glimpse of that when they're in the re-education camp and you mm -hmm. can hear the, like, there are these like loudspeakers, like while the Eisenstein film is playing, uh, <laughs> that are, uh, you know, just saying, like, I can't remember exactly what they say, but it's essentially like, Americans, your, like, country is founded on, like, racism and exploitation or whatever. Uh, and it's like, there's these little hints that it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's actually correct, right? But yeah. you are right that it, it to actually get that message into a Hollywood film, like, that, that uh, correct of what the actual Marxist position would be, right? you do need to actually be aligned with the state department <laughs> when yeah. you see when you see maybe more artful films that then try to include like a character with like a marxist perspective often right like it's it's 
much less what uh those people would actually say <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's like it's like some weird imagined holly like you know hollywoodification of it whereas this film actually has a fairly accurate representation of what the uh correct analysis of uh of uh and it's so funny because it's countered with just this the shallowest like history channel level like you know debate team guy like well actually theodore roosevelt right and like you know bullshit um but it really is just like it's like you cracked open the head of fucking ben shapiro or something and like like poached it like an egg yeah Um, because again like you know viewers of the pod will mostly know me as like the the dumb nerd guy but like really I also, I have a degree in international politics, which when you get that at an American university means like a degree in like state department. And Mm -hmm. as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, I see what's going on here. Like this is, this is a pretty obvious um, where some of these edits came from. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's like, it's the best, uh, you know, it's actually one of the best cases, I think, for uh, rejecting that ideology of, uh, you know, American imperialism and capitalism I've ever seen. Not because it's incoherent, but just because it sucks ass. It's like <laughs> terrible to watch. And it's like, I really don't want to live in the world that operates under these like imperialist laws of physics because it is a, a real drag. Unfortunately, we, we do. <laughs> but yeah. Um, Seriously, watching this film is the equivalent of like just sitting alone in your room and reflecting on how bad the world is. <laughs> like, <laughs> like uh, there is no entertainment or escapism or anything in it at all. So what I was thinking we could do, Ethan, because I think we've exhausted maybe the the uh, analytical kernels in this film yeah. uh, to be popped uh, that we could have maybe, you know, because uh, we're always criticizing films, right? And, you know, it's easy for us to do that. But so, like, why don't we get our hands dirty a little? And, like, I thought we should come up with some ideas of how to make this film better. Okay. So how could we improve Red Dawn? What do you think? That's a great question. Um, A couple of ideas come to mind. So one suggestion of how this film could have been improved. Replace Patrick Swayze's character with a black guy played by Billy D. Williams named Jefferson Davis Forrest. Uh, who at one point in the film turns to the camera and says, I'm glad we're all working together to save America. Unlike that Black Panther shit, that (laughs) stuff is bad news, brother. It's like some mod squad shit. Yeah, that that would have made it. it, That wouldn't have made the film better, but it would have made it um, more apparent what they were doing. And I'm honest, I'm frankly surprised they didn't go that route at some point during the film. That, you know, it actually, you know, you're, we're joking, but it's it's interesting that the film almost completely elides race, right? Like, it's, Was there a uh, single Black American or, like, non-white American single, in the film? Uh, well, so the one character, the one of the boys' name is Arturo, uh, okay. and they call him Aardvark, and he is, he refers to his father as, like, Papa, so, like, I oh. believe he is a Spanish speaker, but we don't know, like, he could be Spanish, like, European Spanish, he yeah. could be... Uh, he could be Latinx or, or I'm guessing that's a holdover from you know, before the edits. Yeah, that's <laughs> uh, the but, only, okay. uh, but there yeah. are no black characters. No. Uh, and then there are obviously like Cuban and Nicaraguan characters who exist to like be yeah. killed. But yeah. it is it is a, 
you know, they strategically place it in like a small town, Colorado, like town that really cares about high school football, right? Like it's, yeah. Yeah. but it is interesting the degree to which, like you compare that to, well, we, we actually maybe will watch the remake sometime, but like Fuck. the, the, this is a, this is a pre, like, even though it's coming out actually in like the height of like economic neoliberalism, like in the Reagan years, this is not uh, doing this sort of like post-racial colorblind uh, neoliberal uh, version of, of this that we would more expect to see today where we would have like a multicultural cast. Which yeah. like, so in that way, it's, it's well behind Predator, um, right? <laughs> but uh, it is interesting the degree to which this film, like again, like it's so purely uh, what the ideology is, right? Like it yeah. only cares about small town white people. Yeah. What about uh, you, Devin? What's your idea? Yeah, so my first idea is, you know, we've talked about another film that comes out this same year, 1984, right? David Lynch's Dune, hmm. uh, which is, you know, as we've talked about on the pod, if you want to listen to a few episodes back, is also kind the of The only like a, David Lynch film worth watching. Yeah, it's the best David Lynch film. It's the only David Lynch film as far as downhill from there, is, folks. is concerned. <laughs> Which uh, I do have word that Dune, the David Lynch Dune, is exclusively streaming on NeilYoungArchives.com this month. Subscribe uh, now, folks. But uh, you know, we, we we talked about like that film is like a also like you know a uh, obviously uh, more science fictional, but a fever dream of like fascism, basically. Mm-hmm. And I tried to argue it was critical of it, right? But the other thing that film does, right, is it gives us a rockin' soundtrack, yeah, and uh, by the band Toto, right. Of, of Africa fame. And I just think fascism always goes down smoother with a Toto soundtrack with some cheesy guitar solos, Hell some yeah. really high fidelity production value, gated reverb on the drums, right? <laughs> like instead in this film, we get the most prepackaged, like militaristic oh, orchestration, you know, just like yeah. like the halls of Montezuma shit. Yeah. Like, nah, man. I want my fascism to feel good. I want it to feel sexy. Yeah. You know, give give me the guitar solos. Right. Uh, yeah. We we get that you have a snare drum. Get over it, asshole. Mm-hmm. That's great. Did you have any other uh, ideas of of how this film might perhaps be yeah. improved? Yeah. No. And so I think this would make the film much much better. Is that mm-hmm. Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen should be playing themselves? Oh. I think I think if this film was actually about Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen just happened to be in this town, like maybe it's it's like a little metafictional, like they're gonna shoot a film here or something, and then the invasion happens, and then they play themselves become guerrilla fighters, and then like like the Russians are like, there's this man Patrick Swayze, we can't stop him, and then like the people are like cheering on, you know, whenever they show up. Uh, I, I would have uh, enjoyed that much more. And then Powers Booth is also playing himself, but no one knows who the fuck he is, so it doesn't make a difference, right? <laughs> Rest in peace, Powers Booth. Really, like, kicking uh, dirt yeah. on Powers Booth's grave. But uh, I, I think, uh, you know, a little... Uh, just, g- you know, give me a little metatextual spice. Give this film a little, a little That's verb. That's uh, great idea. Did you have any others, Ethan? I guess my other recommendation, instead of a story about uh, the communists invading... Just like a story about, you know, how America played out like it did. <laughs> oh, so anyway, you know, we've been, we've been belaboring this long enough. How many Shia LaBeoufs are we going to give this? Oh, game? zero. Okay. So that's interesting. 
I actually gave it. Can I can I pause? Yeah. Oh no, no, go ahead. I've been doing a lot of self-reflection and that I look at our old um past episodes. I don't I don't listen to them because, you know, I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of my Shia LaBeoufs were on the very low end. Like I gave the new Dune like very low Shia LaBeoufs. And it's actually <laughs> like it's it's a fine, it gets an enjoyable film. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to reflect on like I should not be so harsh about the number of Shia LaBeoufs that I give these films. And then after I've had this moment of reflection, we watch Red Dawn. And I have to double down on my inability to like even give over half the possible Shia LaBeoufs that I can give a film because like Red Dawn is such just pure distilled shit that I I can't I can't find any justification for giving it a reasonable or a for giving it a, a higher amount of Shia LaBeoufs, let alone any amount of Shia LaBeoufs, um, I'm just going to give it a zero and and be done with it. Yeah, that's interesting because I like felt very differently. I actually gave it like 20 Shia LaBeoufs, wow. but then the Shia LaBeoufs are all like lined up in a line and shot to death. <laughs> so it does, it ends up becoming zero uh, in death. Like in all what are they singing? What are, the, what are all the Shia LaBeoufs singing when they're gone down? Love me tender. <laughs> <laughs> but like in all seriousness this may be the worst movie i've ever seen it's like it's certainly i don't know what the worst movie i've ever seen is but there is like a level of movie that very few movies reach where it like it's like um it's like when uh like in ant-man when he shrinks so small that like time and space stop meaning anything but you get into movies that bad and like it's like what does it mean to say is red dawn or backdraft 2 better like <laughs> i don't know but red dawn is in that category of like yeah. absolute worst movie and i'm i will defend a i i am first in line to defend a reactionary movie if it has any redeeming qualities wow, whatsoever, first if it's in entertaining. Line. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm get, like, get back, everybody else. I'm first in line to defend reactionary <laughs> films. Anyways, go on. <laughs> this is this is what uh they brought us on NeilYoungArchives.com to do. <laughs> uh but like first I'm just saying power. if it was like a fun action movie that then yeah. had a reactionary message, yeah. I would like, I would not shy away from uh Shia LaBeouf away from it's uh how bad the politics are but I wouldn't yeah. let that keep me from enjoying the action scenes or whatever yeah. that's all I mean but like th these aren't enjoyable action scenes like no. it like this looks like it was like it's not even like student film quality it's just ridiculous yeah. and then oh we didn't even talk about the cut to the credits. <laughs> so like the movie ends with like all the boys are dead and the only person that survived is one of the two girls. Yeah, so let's just to, to close this out, the ending of this film, because we've we've been talking for quite a while about how it is about these American partisans that are fighting the communists in Colorado. Eventually, the communists learn that they can employ three helicopters and when they do that they kill all of the wolverines pretty much except for patrick swayze and charlie sheen the two brothers and uh, i guess also like there's the the two other wolverines that survive oh like what, what one of uh 
Yeah. One of the two women survives, and then like I guess one of the, one of the boys that they're they're un- indistinguishable survives. Yeah, they like they 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 all die, and then they have like the ending scene with uh, Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen, where like yeah, um, where Charlie Sheen dies, but the you know well they Cuban, both die. Well, no, he gets the 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 Cuban guy lets them get away because yeah, but then they die, but then they die in each yeah, other's they... arms, like oh really? Oh, is that what happened? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, no. He just doesn't. He doesn't kill them Actively there, kill them. but then they yeah. get it. They escape and then they like have a moment of like tenderness and they die in each other's arms. That's right. But the only survivors at the end of the film are Jennifer Grey and then like the <laughs> last boy, whoever he is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like at the end of the film, all the Wolverines die and and they've realized that they're running up on two hours runtime. Which is mind-boggling to me in 1984. Like you've gone two hours, and an hour. People don't have cell phones. Yeah, like like like, uh, almost all this film is like you shooting at communists. Parents are like think their children are missing. (laughs) Yeah, it's bad, Uh, and so they realize like, oh, we need to end the film, and so like they have the voiceover of I think Jennifer Grey's character saying like, oh, I I never saw the brothers again. In time, this war, like every other war, ended, but I never forgot. And I come to this place often, though no one else does. Just <laughs> 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 like, like, yeah, fucking, like, they had to like, get in one last, like, they don't respect yeah. memorials line of like people yeah. don't respect the the like the the massacre of like the Lakota's monument that we put up in 1906. Yeah. No one comes to revere that. Yeah. And, and they had in that last line. Yeah. Yeah. No, everyone's in line at the Sam Goody for the new <laughs> Sting single. Yeah. Uh, or they're like, you know, they're looking for an orange Julius at the mall. No, nobody <laughs> comes out to this monument that is seemingly in the yeah. middle of nowhere. <laughs> no access. Yeah, like the those. entire point like, was they put a rock in the middle of nowhere to put the names of their dead. And can I read what it says on Partisan Rock to close mm-hmm. us out here? Yeah. It says, Partisan Rock, in the early days of World War III, gorillas, mostly children, placed the names of their lost upon this rock. They fought here alone and gave their lives, quote, so that this nation shall not perish from the earth, end quote. And my favorite part is in that scene, in the background, you see the American flag, and Puerto Rico is still not a state. We did it, everyone. Oh. We did and it. And then we get a and then we get a hard cut to the credits too, <laughs> where it does cut. that thing where like all the characters have like photographs <laughs> and like it's like I only learned the names of the characters <laughs> via this because like I said, they have no characterization. But we apparently yeah. it's presenting them to us as if we really are sad that Aardvark is dead. <laughs> everyone remembers the great character Aardvark, the Red Dog, <laughs> who had all yeah. those those uh, quirks we remember and actions that we also remember. Like what happened? Did we like say like, let's call it even with the, the Russians? Like, did we Don't invade? ask questions. Like, what ha- the war, okay. the war yeah. ended. Yeah. War's over. We did it. But liberals won't go to the monument. America endured as it will forever. <laughs>
Yep. Well, thank you, listener, <laughs> for uh, tuning in to neilyoungarchives.com and listening to your tall, but I'm standing in front of you. Please find us on neilyoungarchives.com uh, and do give us a five-star rating. Devin, I understand that you have a neilyoungarchives.com exclusive to take us out. Yes, we will be uh, gradually replenishing uh, the catalog of neilyoungarchives.com now that the music of Neil Young has been removed. Uh, so uh, again, thanks for listening and uh, please enjoy. We'll see you uh, soon on uh, neilyoungarchives.com. Can't you download in a brand new book? You love baby, but it takes a flaw. Forgotten one